Bible prophecy is often misunderstood and misapplied, which leaves many people confused or fearful. But when the Bible is studied in its proper context, prophecy becomes clear and understandable. There is no one we can trust more than Jesus, and His words will speak specifically to us as we study them in their simplicity. Welcome to Jesus on Prophecy. Society is not as safe as it was in past generations. There's a tragic lack of peace in many homes and in the lives of many countless individuals. Divorce is becoming rampant. And why is it that we have such high rates of crime in the world today? Random acts of violence becomes common. And through television and the internet, excessive violence, sex, and a total lack of decency and morals have invaded our homes. A distortion of values is occurring right in the home. Things are changing dramatically. And our children, oh my, the children of this generation are being exposed to various versions of right and wrong. There are competing values for the minds of our children. And we see that society says, your mind is the standard. The society says, there is nobody who could tell you what to do. Our society's motto seems to be, if it feels good, do it. If it brings you pleasure, do it. But friends, we know, without a doubt, although we may think those things, although the majority of people think that way, we know without a doubt, without a moral compass, our society is thrown in a state of confusion. Hosea 8 verse 7 says, They sow the wind and they reap the whirlwind. We see that we have been sowing the wind of violence in the media. And we've been reaping the whirlwind of crime. We've been sowing the wind of immorality. And we've been reaping the whirlwind of divorce, rape, and child abuse. There is a cause and effect relationship to every decision that goes on in the world today. And so, to set the tone for our presentation tonight, we look at question number one. How do you protect moral values in an immoral world? And so, we're going to take a look in the Bible. And like we do every night, I'm going to invite each of you at a table. You are at a table, and the table has a number. We're going to go ahead and read a verse each. And that way we all participate, and we all can give the answers from the Bible. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask questions. You will teach me. You will tell me what the answer is straight from the Bible, like we have done night after night. So the question is, how do you protect moral values in an immoral world? I'd like to turn to Revelation chapter 14, verse 7. It's page 1183 in your table Bibles. Revelation 14, verse 7. Page 1183. How do you protect moral values in an immoral world? And we're going to go ahead and start with table number one as we read Revelation 14, verse 7. And as we're waiting for table number one to get ready to read, I'd like to ask that every one of you that is at a table, uh, 
Decide among yourselves who's going to be ready to read when your table is called upon, if you would please, so that we could kind of move efficiently here. So, Revelation 14, verse 7, page 1183, for those who just came in. And we're going to be looking at the answer to the question, how do you protect moral values in an immoral world? Is table number one ready? Say with a loud voice, fear God, give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come. And worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and springs of water. All right, thank you very much. So we see that this is the first angel's message. Remember we covered this? The first angel's message says to fear God and give glory to Him for the hour of His judgment has come. And so this passage in Revelation answers the question of moral responsibility. What did I say? Moral responsibility. Why is there so much crime and violence in society today? Why is there so much immorality? Why is there so much lawlessness? It all revolves around the issue of moral responsibility. And we see that the judgment calls us to accountability for our actions. The judgment implies responsibility and moral choices. If I'm not responsible for what I do, how can God judge me and hold me accountable for those actions? You know, today, people reason, if I have no responsibility, I have no responsibility if I'm an alcoholic because my father was an alcoholic and my grandfather before him was an alcoholic, then I am not responsible. We have other people who say, they excuse themselves saying, if I'm a drug addict because I was abused as a child, then I'm not responsible. We have other people who say, if I'm a criminal because my genetics made me that way, I'm not responsible. But friends, we see that the society that that we live in is a society that largely says, you are not responsible for your actions. It also declares... Right and wrong is something every person determines in their own mind. The idea is, I am responsible only to myself. I'm not responsible to a higher power. I'm not responsible to a God. But when you take that position, that you're not responsible to any higher power, and that there's no judgment, then you have no certain moral standards to guide your life. And we see that the judgment implies responsibility and moral choices. In the last days of earth's history, God is calling men and women to judgment. And so that leads us to question number two. Question number two says, does God have a standard of morality and a basis for the judgment? Does He? Okay, well let's take a look. We see He does. God's law is the basis of morality and the standard of judgment. Amen? And the book of Revelation speaks of a society that says, my mind is the highest standard. There's no judgment. They'll say, I'll make my own moral choices. And the book of Revelation tells us otherwise. The book of Revelation tells us you are responsible for your actions. For the hour of His judgment has come. And the book of Revelation calls us back to the law of God, which is God's moral standard. 
The Apostle James, the brother of Jesus, puts it this way. And I want to direct you to James chapter 2, verse 12. Don't take my words for it. Let's take it from the Bible. James chapter 2, verse 12. And we're moving on to table number 2. James chapter 2, verse 12. But all of us, we're going to look that up. That's page 1159. Page 1159, James chapter 2, verse 12. And we're going to see what James says in regards to the law. And do we have someone from table number two ready for that? All right. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. Ah, so James calls a law what? What kind of law? The law of liberty. Right? So we see that the entire law of God is a law of liberty. Do you feel that the law is liberty? Absolutely. You know, that we, we have a resource that Sal mentioned. Uh, I hope you take that home with you. It's a, it's a magazine that is entitled The Law of Liberty. And you know, a lot of people think that the law of God is infringing. It is uh, suffocating. It is, is bounding us. It's constraining us from what we can or cannot do. But friends, if you actually think about it, what the Bible tells us is anything but that. The law is the law of liberty. How is that the law of liberty? Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. You know this commandment. Thou shalt not kill. Right? The sixth commandment. We see that, why is this a law of liberty? This is an example of liberty, is that this commandment is in place in order to preserve the sanctity of life. And let's take a look at another commandment. You guys know this one. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Right? Is that a law of liberty? Yes. Because why? It preserves the sanctity of the family. It protects the institution of the family. Thou shalt not steal. The eighth commandment. Does that preserve our liberty? You bet. It protects our, it protects our possessions, our property, Think of all the chaos in society if, if the principles of God's law were openly disregarded. Can you imagine how much anarchy that would be? And we see in Revelation chapter 11, verse 19, and it, it shows us a picture of the temple of God. It says, Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the Ark of His Covenant was seen in His temple. What was in the Ark of the Covenant? We talked about that last night. You guys remember? What was in the Ark of the Covenant? The Ten Commandments, that's right. Inside the sanctuary, God instructed Moses to build that earthly sanctuary. He instructed him also to build the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant also contained the law of God. The law of God, which is placed in the sanctuary. The law of God, which is the basis of all morality. And the ark of God's covenant contained His law. And so that tells us something, because we know that the, the ark of the covenant has above it, what? The Shekinah glory, that's right. But the Shekinah glory was, was, uh, was Where? Above the mercy seat. That's right. The mercy seat represents what? God's throne, right? God's throne. So we see that, with, we see that there's the, the mercy seat where the Shekinah glory is above. And underneath we see the Ten Commandments, right? Housed in that container. 
And so what does that tell us? It tells us that God's law is the foundation of His throne. God's law is the foundation of His government. God's government operates on a law or else it would be in total anarchy. Any government that does not have a law in place will not exist for very long. Do you agree with that? You guys see the problems taking place in Venezuela? The chaos and anarchy that's happening there, right? Things are going crazy. That's an example of what could possibly happen if you have total disregard of the laws of the land. And we see, echoing from the book of Revelation, is God's call to keep His law. Question number three. Aren't we saved by grace and we don't have to keep the law? Now, this is a very common question that many Christians ask today. I thought we were saved by grace. We don't have to keep God's law. But is that true? Let's think about it here. The judgment and the law, they're both part of the gospel. Did you know that? They're both found in the gospel. When Jesus was crucified on the cross, he was judged as a sinner dying to pardon our sins. Judgment is part of the gospel. If Jesus, think about it, if God, let's just say hypothetically that God could change the law. Okay, let's just pretend that he could. If God could change the law, would he have allowed his son Jesus to die on the cross? No. Right? If he could change the law, he would say, oh, my son's going to have to die on the cross? Well, I don't want him to die, so I'm going to just change the law. But did he do that? No. Why? Because God didn't or because God couldn't? He couldn't. Right? Because the Bible tells us that the law is the very express character of God. God does not change. The law is simply a reflection of his character. And the Bible tells us that the reason why Jesus had to die was because the wages of sin is death. And if God's law was, was, was changeable, why would Jesus have to die? But the very fact that Jesus had to die shows us that God cannot change his law. And because we broke God's law, and God cannot change the law, he cannot change the penalty for breaking the law, Jesus steps in and he takes our penalty for us. And so that tells us that God, the, the judgment and the law are part of the gospel. Let's take a look at the definition of a sin. 1 John 3, 4, page 1169. Let's take a look in our Bibles there. I kind of showed it early. 1 John 3, 4, page 1169. And if we could have uh, table 4. Someone can read that for us. Uh, 1 John 3, 4. Okay, so what is sin, according to the Bible? Sin is lawlessness, or in other words, a total disregard of the law, right? Or another version says, it's a transgression of the law, which is a, 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 a clear violation or breaking of God's law. So, you know, people may rationalize this way. They may say, you know, when they take something, they say, oh, I'm not really stealing it, but sin is lawlessness. Sin is more than what I think in my mind. 
Here is the Bible's definition of sin. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, for sin is lawlessness. So sin, my friends, is breaking of God's law. A man can say, look, I'm not satisfied in my marriage, so I'm going to go for a weekend with my secretary. That's okay because we're two consenting adults. Is that really okay? Just because both of those people are consenting adults? The Bible says very clearly, thou shall not, what? Commit adultery. God's law is His eternal moral standard which defines sin and establishes our accountability to God. His law defines what morality is, even if your mind does not. And the Bible says that sin is the breaking of God's law. The book of Revelation says the hour of God's judgment is come. And the book of Revelation says that we, you, and I are all responsible for our actions. The book of Revelation says that the foundation of God's throne is God's law. There's no way to get around it. And question number four then asks, what benefits does the law of God bring us? Does the law of God come with benefits? Well, let's take a look. Uh, The next table, table number... What table are you guys? Six. Six. <laughs> okay. The next table. Table number six, if you could read Proverbs 29, 18. It's page 634 in your Bibles. So we could all turn there together. Proverbs 29, verse 18. Page 634 in your Bibles. What benefits does the law of God bring us? And we're going to take a look at Proverbs 29, verse 18. And... So does that verse say, miserable is he who keeps God's law? Is that what it says? No, it says what? Happy. Happy are they who keep his law. So in other words, is there a benefit to keeping God's law? When we follow God's law, we have the prescription for happiness. If you believe what the Bible says. Do you believe what the Bible says? Yes. Let's take a look at another text. What other benefit do we get? We get happiness as we abide in God's law, but what else do we get? What other benefit do we receive from God's law? Psalms 119, 165. Psalms 119, 165, page 591. Page 591 in your Bibles. That's Psalms 119, 165. We are now on table number 7. Okay, table number 7, Psalms 119, 165, page 591. What other benefit does the law provide? Okay, page 591. Okay. Uh, 165. Psalms 119-165. Ah, thank you. So it says, what do we receive? Great peace have they that, what? Love thy law, right? So in other words, we see that what the Bible tells us, what our children need today, 
is not a diet of murder, violence, and immorality on television. Our children need to be taught the moral principles that God has given us. The moral law of God protects us. God's law is not some arbitrary regulation to restrict our happiness. Far from it. God's law is a pathway to freedom and genuine happiness. God's law protects us from a lifestyle which would destroy us. And so we see that God's love is to preserve. It is indeed the law of liberty because it preserves our love and, and our happiness and our peace among our fellow brethren. Question number five. But isn't keeping the law legalism? You know, some people will say, you know, we, I thought we were saved by grace. We don't need to keep God's law. If we're keeping God's law, that's legalism. But friends... The truth of the matter is, love always leads to obedience. Can you say that with me? Love always leads to obedience. You know, some Christians in the world have said, you know, we don't need to preach on the law in the church. We preach about His love. As if they're two different things. But friends, we know that love always leads to obedience. Obedience. Isn't that right? Love doesn't lead you to disobedience, right? It leads you to keep God's commandments. And if you don't believe me, let's hear the words of Jesus, shall we? Let's go to John chapter 14, verse 15, page 1043 in your Bibles. John chapter 14, verse 15. Does love lead to obedience? What does Jesus say? We want to get it from the words of Jesus, don't we? And so let's see what he himself says in John 14, 15, page 1043. And we have table number 8. Is that right? Table number 8 is next to read this text for us. John 14, 15. Thank you, Sonia, for reading that for us. Jesus says, if you love me, say you love me. Is that what he says? If he's, did Jesus say, if you love me, just, you know, do some loving uh, uh, act of uh, kindness towards me. Is that what he says? No, he says, if you love me, keep my, what? Commandments, right? So love is a response to keep God's commandments. The reason we obey is not because we're trying to earn God's favor. It's the response of our love for him. I do not obey God to earn my salvation, but because I am saved out of my love for Him, it's my response to naturally do what He asks me to do. Right? Not to earn something. I don't obey to be saved. I obey because I am saved. There's a big difference there. Right? Because I am saved, the fruit of my salvation will lead to obedience. There's nothing legalistic about that. When you love God... And your natural motivation to love God is to do what He asks us to do. That is simply in complying to what He asks us to do because He has saved us and He loved us. We're saved already. But we just do it out of our love for Him. Right? Not to earn our salvation. I obey God not in order to be saved, but I obey because I am saved. But when I come to the cross, my obedience is evidence that I am saved. 1 John 2, 3 and 4. Let's turn there. 1 John 2, 3 and 4, page 1168. Page 1168. 1 John 2, 3 and 4. Let's read this. 
as we're talking about what is the motivation for why I ought to obey God's commandments. 1 John 2, 3 and 4, page 1168, table number 9. And if we could have someone read that for us, 1 John 2, 3 and 4, page 1168. Oh, so that's very clear. That's a clear indicator. It says that who, we know that we know Him if we do what? If we keep His commandments, right? Have you ever heard people say, like, they're blatantly breaking God's commandments? You could tell by their lifestyle. They're not living in harmony with God's Word. They're not living in harmony with God's law. And they say, oh yeah, I know God. And they do these things but they're not ashamed about it. And they just say, but God knows my heart. And I know God loves me. Right? But what does this text tell us? It tells us, they that say that know Him, truly know Him if they what? Keep His commandments. Right? And he who says, I know Him and does not keep His commandments, what does the Bible say they are? They're a liar. And the truth is not in them. Right? And so, Anyone who says to you, God's law is done away with, forget those commandments, is only teaching you half the gospel. Not the whole gospel. It's the gospel in part. And so we see that grace and the law are not contradictory ideas. When you are saved by grace, that does not mean that you are saved to disobey. Grace is not a cloak that allows you a free ticket to do what you wish because, oh, God has you covered, so it doesn't matter what you do. So go ahead and do what you do. You cannot be perfect, but that's okay. God's grace will cover you. You're not, when you're saved by grace, in the truest sense, you're not saved to disobey. You are saved to obey. Amen? So let's take a look at this. Number six, what is the role of God's law? Okay, what is God's law? What's the role of that? What, what is the purpose of God's law? First of all, we know, without a doubt, that salvation is by grace. Amen? Old Testament believers looked forward to a Christ who would come. In the New Testament, we look to a Christ who has come. And they were saved by grace to come. We are saved by a grace that has come. But if it's all by grace then what is the role of God's law? And Romans chapter 3, verse 20 tells us what is the role of God's law. Okay, the Bible tells us, and it's page 1087. Page 1087, Romans chapter 3, verse 20 is where we're going. What is the role of God's law? What is the purpose of God's law? Romans chapter 3, verse 20, page 1087. And I believe table number 10 is uh, up to read this text. So if someone from table number one can read this, Romans 3, verse 20, 1087, what is the role of God's law? Are we ready?
Okay, so what is the role of God's law according to that text, brothers and sisters? The role of the law is to what? To give us the knowledge of sin. Right? The knowledge, the, the law's purpose is to show us what sin is. Yes or no? Yes. So get this. If you do away with the law, what happens? If you do away with the law, what happens? There's no knowledge of sin. Right? So that's why the devil loves the fact that we totally eliminate the law. Because he doesn't want you to know that you have sin. He doesn't want you to know that there's sin in your life. He wants you to remain in that condition so that you don't have to come to Jesus, you don't have to come to a Savior who will deal with that condition, and He wants you to be lost by eliminating the law. You see, my friends, the law is like a mirror. How many of you guys looked at a mirror this morning before you started the day? Raise your hand. Be honest. We all did, right? Now, why did you do that? Are you so vain to look at yourself in the mirror every morning? Is that why? No, why? Because you want to see if there's anything wrong with you, right? <laughs> when you wake up in the morning, you want to make sure, is my hair right? <laughs> you know, do I have stuff in my, uh, my face? You, know, you, want to, you want to see that. You can only know through the mirror. The law is like that. We need the law because the law shows us our sinful condition. It shows us the areas in our life that needs to be addressed. But the thing is that the law itself, when we look at the law, we cannot use the law to clean ourselves. How many of you guys uh, cleaned yourself with the mirror this morning? Nobody, right? The law, does, the, the mirror doesn't serve that function. The law doesn't serve that function. The law does not cleanse us. The law just shows us our condition. But who cleanses us? Jesus. Only Jesus can cleanse us, right? But the law, which is that mirror, only serves one function. To help us to know sin. To help us to know that we have a sinful condition. Are you following? Does that make sense? Yes or no? Yes. Okay, good. So let's take a look at another text. Romans chapter 7, verse 7, page 1090. And we're on, pay, we're on table number 11. Where's table number 11? Is that the Clark family? Okay, well, we'll go to that, your table, okay? <laughs> okay, Romans 7, 7. Okay, page 1090. Romans 7, 7, page 1090. Okay, so we see very clearly the law helps us to know what? Sin, right? So there's another text that proves that. So friends, if you break God's law, it's sin, yes or no? So the role of the law is to define sin. The law says, this is right, this is wrong. 
The law defines a moral standard of God's judgment. The law defines the foundation of all society. The judgment in Revelation calls men and women everywhere back to keeping God's law. It calls Christians that are saved by grace to live obedient, righteous, holy lives. And Revelation's judgment does not justify our own sinful behavior. It calls us to what? Moral responsibility. Question number seven. What is the role of grace then? Okay, we know the law. What's the role of the law, friends? To show us what is sin, right? So what is the role of grace then? Okay, what is the role of grace? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, page 1125. What is the role of grace? Oftentimes people pit the law and grace against each other as if they're to go against each other. They're, they're opposites. But we see that they're, they're in harmony with one another. We're going to see how are they in harmony with one another. We see that the law shows us what sin is. What is the role of grace? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, page 1125. And we are on table number... I can't read back there. <laughs> Your sign's not showing. Oh, is it... Uh... Oh, my brother there. <laughs> hey, brother. <laughs> awesome. Aha. Uh -huh. Okay, so we see that. How are we saved? By keeping the law? No, what does it say? By grace are you saved through faith, not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, not of the works of the law, right? So you can't work your way to salvation by keeping God's law, right? That's impossible, Paul is saying. The only way that we can be saved is by grace. Amen? And so grace is what saves us, right? The law shows us our sin. We realize we are a sinner. We realize we're in a sinful condition. Now we seek after what? Grace. We seek after grace. Because that is the only thing that can save us. We cannot save ourselves by doing the works of the law to try, and our, try to earn our way back into God's favor. That is impossible. And you'll never make it. We're only saved by grace. The Bible makes it very clear. But let's take a look at what grace is. Some people think that grace is simply unmerited favor. And that's not wrong. That's right. But that's not all of it. See, they even get the, the, the grace halfway right, too. Because if you get the Bible definition of grace, it's a lot more than that is not simply just unmerited favor where people have this idea, oh, if I sin, His grace will cover me, so it's okay if I keep sinning. No. They're missing the other part. A very important part. You, know, you want to know what grace really is, according to the Bible? Go to Titus chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. Titus chapter 2, verse 11 and 12 tells us what grace really looks like. The true grace of God, that what it really looks like is found in Titus chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, page 1146. And this is one of my favorite texts that just blew my mind when I finally understood what grace really is. Page 1146, Titus 2, 11 and 12. And we have that final table back there with the faithful four. <laughs> okay, so we'll have someone read that. Titus 2, 11 and 12. 
What does the grace of God look like? And the Bible tells us. Okay. All right. Do we have someone ready to read that for us? Take it away. Pause right there. Catch this. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, it says. So in other words, it's saying, this is what it looks like, so pay attention to what it says next. Go ahead. Wow. That is a biblical definition of what true grace is. True grace, as appeared to all men, is does what? Does it just kind of be a cloak for our sins and we could continue to be sinning? What does it say? True grace teaches us that we should what? Deny ungodliness, deny worldly lusts, and also furthermore, if you think that that's too overwhelming, it says that we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. So in other words, the grace, the true grace in the Bible, is not just merely unmerited favor, but it's the power to live the victorious Christian life. It's the grace is the power for us to overcome sin. Say amen. Grace is the power that also covers our sins that we've committed in the past, praise the Lord, unmerited favor, but grace, furthermore, on top of that, empowers us to live a victorious life as a Christian to overcome sin. God does not save us in our sins. He saves us from our sins through His grace. That is true grace. So when people say, Oh, grace, you could continue sinning and God's grace will abound. Where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. They think that, you know, it doesn't matter how much you sin, grace will always outweigh sin. That's not what it's talking about. It's saying where sin abounds, whatever sinful conditions and sinful defects you're struggling with, grace will overpower it. Grace will give you the victory over it. And that is true biblical grace that many people do not understand. Many people just settle for, oh, it just covers your sins, so you could continue living your life as you please. You don't have to overcome sin. You just live your life as you please. God knows that you're not perfect. No, friends. God gives us the power to overcome sin. Can you say amen to that? Amen. Amen. And so we see that grace, true grace, true biblical grace is, yes, God's mercy Yes, God's pardon. Yes, God's forgiveness. But it's also God's power that enables us to live a victorious, sanctified Christian life. It is also the love of God that compels us to do His will. That is true grace. All encapsulated grace. Not a partial understanding of grace, but the true biblical understanding of grace. So, God's grace is available to each and every one of us tonight. Can you say amen? Amen. And number eight, you hear this? Does grace do away with God's law? No, not after what we learned. Grace does not do away with God's law. If I am saved by grace, does that lead me to break God's law? Let's take a look at Romans chapter 3, verse 31. Romans chapter 3, verse 31, page 1087. 
page 1087, and we made it all the way across the room, so we're back to table number one. And so, Romans 3, 31, page 1087, does grace do away with God's law? Do we then make void the law of faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. That's right. So Paul is saying, because we have grace, do we, and we have faith in God, we make void the law, the law is obsolete? He says, certainly not. We now can establish the law because what empowers us to keep the law? His grace. The power of God that enables us to do what we cannot do for ourselves. So Paul says, don't think that we did away with the law by faith through grace. We establish it. We keep it. People who are saved by grace, how do you know they're saved by grace? Because the result of them being saved by grace is obedience. Obedience is the fruit that they've been saved. It's a fruit of salvation. And Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to, what? Fulfill. Right? Now some people think that this means that Jesus, He fulfilled the law, so He, he fulfilled it for us, so we don't have to keep the law. That's not true. We see that Jesus When he said, fulfill the law, he was living the law. Jesus himself obeyed the law. He fulfilled it. That word fulfilled means carry into effect, bring to realization, perform, execute, to cause God's will to be obeyed as it should be. That is a true meaning of fulfilled. And he's calling us to do the same as well. And we see Romans chapter 6 verse 14. It says, for sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under what? Grace. Right? So when sin, when does sin have dominion over you? What does it mean when sin has dominion over you? What does it look like when someone is under the dominion of sin? When somebody is under the dominion of sin, they live their life following their own way rather than God's way. When you flippantly go and break God's law, when you do that, the sin chains you because the Bible says sin is the transgression of the law. Paul says, for sin shall not have dominion over you for you are not under the law but under what? Grace. Okay, so let's take a look at this text even further. It says, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. What does it mean to be under the law? What does it mean to be under the law? Okay. Yeah, to, yeah, to obey it, exactly. So under the law means to be under the law is the, is the method that you seek for your salvation. You see, the Jewish people back in Paul's day, they were under the law. They were thinking that as long as I keep all these points of the law, I'm going to make it to salvation. And that's what they thought. They prided themselves in keeping God's law. And Paul is saying those people are under the law. And he says that they trust the law to save them by keeping it. But Paul says that 
if I trust the law to save me, I'm condemned. Because there's no way I can keep it completely, perfectly. What is sin? Sin is the breaking of God's law. I'm condemned by the law I broke, so I'm under the law. So even though you may keep 99.9% of the law, (laughs) you may say, hey, that's pretty good. But you know what? That 0.1% where you broke God's law tells you you're still under the law. And there's no way you can get out of that. Ever. And so that's why it's a hopeless situation if you're trying to work your way to salvation. When you're trying to keep the law as a means of salvation. And we see that Paul says in Romans 6.14, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under the law, but under what? Grace. What does it mean to be under grace? If What was that? Yes, so God's power, to be under, the gra- under God's grace means the opposite of trying to work my way, right, to salvation. But to be under God's grace means I come to the cross. I kneel at the foot of the cross. And to be under grace means that I accept Christ's pardon. I receive Christ's forgiveness and I am filled now with His power. And Christ, what does He do? When that happens, what experience do we, do we undergo? Christ then writes His law where? On our hearts. On our minds. And so then now I have a desire to obey Him because of that work that He's done. The Bible is very clear on the subject. When we come to Jesus Christ and throw ourselves at His feet... He says, my child, no matter what you've done in the past, no matter how sinful your life has been in the past, my child, I forgive you and you can begin again anew. And so we see the law reveals our need. It reveals our need for a Savior. The law, when I look at it, I see who I am. I don't measure up to that law. And when I come to Jesus, when I look at the, His law, so I see times where I've been impatient. I've seen times when I've been as, uh, I haven't been as kind as I could have been. And when I come to Jesus, I fall at His feet. And this is what David means when he says in Psalms chapter 19, verse 7, he says, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. That perfect law. Now, now, when you read this, it may seem like that law is what makes you converted. It's not true. Okay? The law compels you to be converted. The law, the perfect law, when I see it, and I see the, the enormous requirement of the law, and I realize I cannot meet that requirement, that perfect law drives me, it should drive me to Jesus. And I say, Oh Jesus, my heart is broken. My heart is crushed because of my sin. Jesus, forgive me. Jesus, pardon me. Lead me, dear Jesus, to keep your law. Lead me, dear Jesus, to be obedient. Somebody came to Jesus once and tried to trick him. A lawyer. 
came to Jesus and he asked him, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment of the law? See, they're trying to trap him. And how did Jesus respond? He says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. He says, This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like unto it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. What is Jesus doing here? Jesus, you know, some people think that Jesus, when he says these two commandments, they say, aha, see the Ten Commandments have been replaced with these two new commandments. So we don't need to worry about the Ten Commandments anymore. These are the new two commandments. But did you know those two commandments that Jesus is quoting from are not new at all? They're found in the Old Testament. (laughs) It's found in Deuteronomy 6 verse 5. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And Leviticus 19.18, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus was simply quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting Moses. What Jesus is doing, he is summarizing the Ten Commandments. He's saying that the Ten Commandments, in summary, is loving God with all your heart, which is the first four commandments, and loving your neighbor as yourself, which is the last six commandments. The dividing line between our requirement for our, 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 our obligation to God and our obligation to our fellow man. So Jesus was not replacing the Ten Commandments. He was summarizing. He was encapsulating. He was actually bringing out the principle by which we keep the commandments. He says is love for God and love for our fellow man. He says on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So the entire law can be summarized in one word. What word is that? Love. Love. <laughs> Somebody once told me that the, the word law is an acronym. Do you, go, you know what that acronym is? <laughs> and I like it. I like what they said. Law is an acronym that stands for love at work. I like that. <laughs> Love at work. Because of God's love that flows into me, because of God's love, I respond by doing the things because of my love for Him. Right? And He also empowers me to do the good works. It's not that I do the good works to be saved. I do the good works because I am saved. Right? It's a fruit of salvation. So loving God and our fellow man. Jesus summarized the first four commandments with love. He's saying, if you love fully, you will love God. If you love fully, you'll love your fellow man. Love always leads to obedience. And God's Ten Commandment law was written with God's finger on tables of stone, showing that God's law was never to be obsolete. God's law would never fade into oblivion. God's law would never be expired of its validity. It is written in stone to show the enduring nature of God's law, which represents the enduring, enduring, unchanging nature of God's character. And this is a uh, something that here's an illustration uh, that I found very amusing. Um, This guy says, "I hate being confined by this fence. I'm jumping over it." And he says, "No, wait! It's not a fence." And that, that fence says God's commands, right? He's jumping over it. And he says, it's a guardrail! 
Now, a lot of people think of the law like that. They think the law limits my freedom, man. I want to break out. I want to be free and do my own thing. Why do I have to keep a set of laws? And we see that God's law doesn't put you in bondage. It takes you out of bondage. The Ten Commandments were not given to restrict our freedom. They were given so that we could truly be free. They were given by God Himself. Listen to how they're introduced in Exodus chapter 20, verse 2. Remember the Ten Commandments? Remember the Ten Commandments? Yes? Okay, where is that found? Anyone remember? Exodus chapter 20, right? But before the Ten Commandments are outlined, do you know what God says before that? It's very interesting. In verse 2, God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of what? Bondage. So God wanted to lead them to what? Freedom. And he says this right before he outlines the Ten Commandments. God was not saying, I'm taking you out of Egypt to put you in bondage to my law. That's not what he's saying. He is showing them true freedom, the true prescription of freedom that is through the Ten Commandments. So let's read them. Let's all read it together. The first commandment, what does it say? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. God is saying, I am supreme in your life. No other gods. Not your house. Not your money. Not tobacco. Not liquor. Not materialism. Not even your spouse. Or boyfriend or girlfriend. Right? God should be first. Worship God supremely. Commandment number two. Let's read it together. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. God says, don't come to me through images. Come to me directly. Commandment number three. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Are you guys with me or not? (laughs) So it says, love God enough to respect His name. Think of it, the name of Jesus. That name which, which angels veil their faces. The name at which angels sing, holy, holy, holy. The name that is being dragged through the dust with vile curses on television movies and even people walking by the street. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. The next one, let's read this together. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord thy God. The Sabbath is an institution of God as the creator of heaven and earth. Worship Him who made you. The fourth commandment speaks to this generation. And we see the next commandment. Let's read it together. Honor thy father and thy mother. In an age where children no longer obey their parents, when a kid says to their parents, you can't tell me what to do. We see that the fifth commandment speaks with relevance today. Thou shalt not kill. At a time where nuclear weapons are being built to kill people, at a time where abortion is on demand, at a time where snipers kill innocent children, this is a commandment that says, Life is sacred. Thou shalt not kill. Next one. Thou shalt not commit adultery. At a time of immorality, 
at a time when there's a lack of moral purity, God's law speaks to this generation. When a society turns its back on God, when it openly is immoral, that society is on its way to, to, to disaster. And this is a call for America, a call for the world to come back to God's law. You know, it's very interesting when you look at the Bible how whenever nations actually turned against God, they didn't, they didn't last for very long. The Jewish nation is also a, a, a proof of that. Whenever they apostatized, they turned away from God, they rebelled against God, they were always taken into captivity. Their, their, their uh, nation was gone. It was, it was non-existent as a result of that. And we see the next one, Thou shalt not steal. It's wrong to steal. It's wrong to shoplift. It's still wrong to take something that does not belong to you. And next one, Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Lying is still wrong today. There's no such thing as a white lie. Right? A lie is a lie. Gossip is still wrong. Dragging someone's good name through the dust is still wrong. And this still happens in the churches. Mercy. We need to ask the Lord to sanctify our tongues. What do you say? Well, we should, actually, He should sanctify our hearts because out of the, issue, out of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? <laughs> so we need, we need new hearts, converted hearts. And the last one, thou shalt not covet. The Ten Commandment law speaks to, to this generation. God's commandments speak to you and I today. And we see that the psalmist reveals that God's Ten Commandments are never obsolete, it's never old-fashioned, it's never out of date. It says very clearly in Psalms 111, verse 7 and 9, page 583, it says, The works of His hands are verity and justice. All His precepts are sure. They stand fast, how long? Forever and ever. And He has commanded His covenant forever. You know... Some people who say that the law of God was nailed to the cross don't know what they're talking about because it's not talking about the moral law. It doesn't make sense that God's moral law is suddenly done away with when Jesus died on the cross. It's not referring to the moral law when it's talking about the commandments were nailed to the cross. That's referring to the ceremonial law, which we talked about in the sanctuary last night. Remember? The sanctuary services, the ordinances, those laws were what was nailed to the cross because when Jesus died... The sanctuary was torn from top to bottom, signifying that the sanctuary was obsolete. We don't need sanctuary services anymore today. We don't bring lambs to church service to kill them for our sins today because Jesus is the lamb, right? And so that law, the ceremonial law, all the things that are outlined in the sanctuary services was nailed to the cross, but it was not God's moral law. God's moral law, it says here, stands fast when? till Jesus dies on the cross, is that what it says? His moral law stands where? Forever and ever, right? And if you uh, believe the Bible, you have to believe that. Friends, notice the pattern. Satan, through disobedience, lost heaven. Adam and Eve, because of their disobedience, they lost Eden and paradise was lost. God is calling His people back to His Ten Commandment law, even today. And we see in question number nine, how is it possible for us to keep God's law? Now this is a very good question. How is it possible for us to keep God's law perfectly? Would you like to know that? 
I think that's the most important thing that we need to know today. I think this is one of the most important questions. How is it possible for us to keep God's law? And I want you to not miss this. <laughs> so we're going to look at straight from the Bible. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10, page 1152. Check this out. Highlight it. Underline it. Write it down and pray that the Lord will give you this experience in this text. Hebrews 8 verse 10. How is it possible for us to keep God's law? Page 1152. Page 1152, Hebrews 8.10. How is it possible for us to keep God's law? And where, where are we? Which table? Table number two. Is that right? Table number two. If we could have someone read Hebrews 8 verse 10. Page 1152. Right. So we see that God says, I'm going to enter a new covenant with you. And what does this new covenant involve? What does it say? That God will do what? He will write His law upon their hearts and put it in their minds. So, what does that mean? What does it mean when God writes His law upon our heart and upon our mind? Well, let's take a look. What is the uh, purpose of the heart? When you think about the heart, the heart is what? Where we experience what? Emotions. Feelings. Right? So when he writes it upon our heart, what does it look like? When he writes it upon our heart, it looks like where once we did not have a desire to do God's word, God's will, all of a sudden when He writes it on our hearts, we suddenly have a desire to do His will where that desire was not there before. What does it look like when He writes in our minds? Hmm? What happens in the mind? Knowledge. Thought processes. Right? So in other words, when God writes His law in our minds, suddenly we know the difference between right and wrong. We have true discernment of true morality based on God's law being written in our minds. So all of a sudden we have a clear understanding of what's right and wrong. We now have a desire to do it. The things that we used to love to do, we don't do. The things that we once hated to do, we now love to do. Because now God has changed our hearts. So we see that God, why is this important? Why is it important for us to have that experience tonight and from this night forward? Because God will have a last day people who will have His law written on their hearts and minds, my friends. And they will love Him and they will obey Him. And this is why this topic tonight is so important. You may think, we're talking about prophets today. Why are we talking about the law of God? This is why I saved the climax for the end. Revelation chapter 12, verse 17. 
Can we have someone read that? Table number four. Page 1182. Revelation 12, verse 17. Why is this so important, this topic? Revelation 12, verse 17. It tells us, and we're going to have someone read that. And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of our offspring, to keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Thank you. Did you catch that? Prophecy tells us that the Antichrist in the last days will seek to change times and laws. And the dragon, who's the dragon? Satan is wroth with the woman. Why? Why is he wroth with the woman? The woman represents a church. Why is he wroth with the church? This particular church that is mentioned in, Latin, in prophecy. Because this church is described as keeping the commandments of God and the testimony of Jesus. So clearly, the line of distinction is drawn between those who love God and keep His commandments and those who say they love God, but they keep the commandments of men. The line of distinction is drawn very clearly. And that distinguishes the world from these people. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Here are the faithful ones. In the last chapter of Revelation, it also describes the redeemed in this way. It says, just remember, Satan, because of his disobedience, was cast out of heaven. Adam and Eve, because of their disobedience, they were cast out of the Garden of Eden. But watch what happens. The, the ultimate reversal at the very end on the last chapter of Revelation. It says, blessed are those who do His commandments that they may have right to what? The tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. God will have a people in the last days who have allowed God to write, their law, write His law upon their hearts and minds and as a result of that taking place in their lives, they are able to withstand the final storm of this world. The final tribulation that will be unleashed upon this world and they will stand firm and loyal with utmost fidelity to their Lord and Master Jesus Christ by obeying Him and not loving their life until death. Willing to die rather than sin against Him. And it says that these people, these redeemed, will have access to the tree of life. They will enter through the gates into the city. And we see that Jesus pardons us and He says, come to me, my children. He gives us mercy tonight. And Christ looks into our eyes and He says, I have something special I want to do for you. I want to change your life. I want to make you a new man or woman. And would you like to say, Jesus, thank you. Please come into my life. Jesus, please, would you do for me what I cannot do for myself? And Jesus will say, of course I will. I will do it for you. And he will make it happen. Many years ago, a mother took her young son to hear the renowned preacher Dwight Moody. After the sermon, she stood in line for one reason. She wanted her son to shake hands with this well-renowned evangelist. And when the boy's turn came, and he came before Dwight Moody, he refused to shake his hands. 
And the mother was totally embarrassed. And she said, what's wrong with you? Shake his hand. He's, he's waiting. Shake his hand. And she urged him. She coaxed. And she even took the boy's hand and attempted to place it in the preacher's hand. But the boy would not open his fingers. And the reason why was there was a few beautifully colored marbles in his hand. <laughs> and he thought that the preacher was going to take all his marbles. <laughs> now friends, what are you clinging to tonight? What are you holding on to? Is there anything more important to you than reaching out and taking Jesus' hand right now? His grace will pardon you. His grace will transform your life. His grace will make you a new man or woman in Christ. And I love that old hymn. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the Lamb was spilt. Grace, grace. God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. Marvelous, infinite, matchless grace. Freely bestowed on all who believe. His grace flows from His throne to your heart now, tonight. All you have to do is reach out and take it. Let go of what you're clinging to in this world and grab onto the grace He offers. How many of you today want to say, Lord, I want to accept Your grace right now. I want to let go of whatever's preventing me from receiving that marvelous gift. If that is your desire tonight, would you raise your hand and say, Yes, Lord, I want that grace Thank you for offering it to me. I want you to make me a new woman and man in Christ. Praise the Lord. Let's pray as we close. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have shown us tonight that the law and grace are not pitted against each other, but they are working in harmony with one another. And the law we are grateful for. The Ten Commandments we are grateful for. Yes, it is scary. Yes, it is, is ominous to see that we cannot meet the requirements of that law. But that law I love because it leads me to Jesus. It helps me to realize my need for Him. And when I come to Jesus, and when we all come to Jesus, as we raise our hands, Lord, we all want to come to Jesus tonight. And we expect that He will bestow that grace to each and every one of us tonight. That grace that will cover our past record of sin. But also that grace that will empower us to overcome sin as well. Lord, we thank you so much for this marvelous gift. And we praise you that we can be called your children. And Lord, we pray that you'll please be with each and every one of us here tonight. Help us to experience that power of your grace in our lives from this moment on. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.